Good morning. Talking about the good life. Letter of James tells us about it. You might ask, what is the good life? And what James describes the good life as, it's when wisdom produces gentle actions. When talking about wisdom, that's what James' letter focuses on. Wisdom is spiritual intelligence. It differs from intellectual intelligence, even emotional intelligence. Um, Wisdom is not about acquiring a body of knowledge. It's not even measured by how well we know the Bible. Wisdom is measured by how we live our lives. And the reason why we know that is because James talks about it a lot in his letter. Look what he says in James chapter 3, verses 13, which is really the, the, the verse that we're kind of going from to um, try to figure out what the good life is about. It says James 3.13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. What is the good life? By deeds done in the humility that come from wisdom. So the good life, wisdom, is about gentle actions and wise words. And that's where James goes. talks a lot about words, the things we say. Words are very powerful. They change the way we think about God. They change the way we think about one another. That's why last week we talked about what James has to say about the tongue. And what we say about other people impacts the way we look at other people. And that's why words are very powerful. They change reality in a way. Let's look at what he says in James chapter 3, verse 17, relative to words of wisdom. We'll read it, we'll define some words, and then we'll apply. But James says, the wisdom that comes from heaven, if first of all pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, goes on to say, impartial and sincere. A couple words, peace-loving, that's fairly simple. The wisdom from above, and it describes the kind of characteristics that you look at and you know that wisdom from above is being reflected because there's a wisdom from below. Um, And the wisdom from above is, first of all, peace-loving. It's the opposite of being combative. And pugilistic, somebody who's peace-loving is not contentious or argumentative. You know, there's some people that if you say red, they say black. If you say yes, they say no. If you say black, they say white. And peace-loving is the opposite of that. It's, it's to be not argumentative, not contentious. It talks about considerate. Considerate, it's, it's a word that describes common ground. That's what this word has as its root. And to be considerate then really has the sense of somebody who looks for common ground with another person. So you're meeting with somebody and you might have different ideas about this or that, but a person who is this considerate looks for where do we have some similarities? Where do we stand in the same place? So that's wisdom from above. It's Peace-loving. It's not contentious or argumentative. It searches for common ground. And then the word submissive. Submissive, it's actually, it means to be easily persuaded, to be yielding. A person who's submissive, sometimes you can submit on the outside but not on the inside. And, and the person who's submissive in this context is a person who's 
easily persuaded. Saul, they're not naive, but they're open-minded. They have room for other realities other than their own. I think this, but you might think that. Tell me about that. Tell me about that. So, again, we start to get a picture for wisdom above. It, it's not contentious or argumentative. It's, it's some, I'm looking for common ground. It's, and so if you tell me something, I'm open-minded enough to be able to consider. Now, I might not agree with you, but I have a capacity to understand what you're saying. You know what this is creating an image of? The wisdom from above builds bridges. It builds bridges between people. That's what's characteristic of a person that you can connect with. They are open to what you have to say. They don't jump on you if you say the wrong thing. And that's what James describes. He says that full of mercy and good fruit. Again, you've heard it say people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so that's part of the picture as well. Not just what you hear and the way you process words, but what you do. And then it says a couple other words, impartial and sincere. Impartial literally means not judgmental. It, it's to be impartial or unbiased and fair-minded. When you think of somebody that is so rock-rooted in this belief that they have no ability to stray from it, they really have no ability to be partial, impartial, because they're so died in the wool. And again, we can have our beliefs, but still build bridges of understanding with another person. That's what this word means. And to be sincere means literally to be not hypocritical. It's somebody without pretense or posturing. Again, what James has to say is a lot of things about, so he creates this picture. And this picture is about a person who is and can be approached. They have their own ideas, but they're possible, they're able to dialogue with another person. If you think of why we are not to be judgmental as people. Now, the opposite of being judgmental is not to be relativistic and not have an opinion about something. That's not the opposite of judgment. You know what the opposite of judgment is? What James describes here. To be peace-loving to be able to find common ground, to yield, to be able to be open, to be full of mercy and good fruit, to not be judgmental and not be hypocritical. The opposite of judgment is, and here's a word that we've talked about before, dialogue. Dialogue. The opposite of judgment is dialogue. See, if I'm not judging you, it's not that I don't have an opinion, but what I'm able to do is tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. And again, what we've all experienced, it's hard to express your opinion to someone when you know that they are taking your inventory. You really don't want to, unless you want to debate with them. But if you want to have a discussion, it's easier to have a discussion with somebody who seems to be open to what you have to say. And that's what James talks about the wisdom from above is about. It's, it has a gentleness that way. The word dialogue comes from two Greek words, dia. It doesn't mean to, that's dua. Dia means through, through. Dialogue, logos means word. So dialogue is through words, through words. And you mean, what do you mean by through words? Words that break down walls. That's what dialogue is. 
You might have your reality, and I have mine. But what dialogue is, I can penetrate the wall that exists between us. Now, I might not come over on your side, but I'll understand you. That's what dialogue is. And it, it breaks down the walls between people. I've told you before, there's a book, The Magic of Dialogue by Daniel Yankelevich. The Magic of Dialogue. Kind of a dry book, but kind of interesting. He, he talks about what brought the Cold War down. It was, it was in Reykjavik, Iceland. And at that, so the president at the time, Ronald Reagan, was meeting with um, Gorbachev at the time, and they had official kind of sessions, and the official sessions weren't happening. And Gorbachev and Reagan sat down, and they started to dialogue with each other. Tell me about your dreams. And Reagan listened. What do you want for your country? What, kind, what do you want for your... And then Gorbachev asked the same thing of Reagan. And they had an informal discussion in which each man saw the other man's heart. And what Gorbachev was to say afterwards, that had as much to do as ending the Cold War as any of the other sessions. And that's why Daniel Yankelevich says, dialogue is almost magic in its power almost magic, when you really try to enter into another person's thinking, withholding judgment, wanting to understand, very powerful. Wisdom from above builds bridges of understanding. It expresses itself through dialogue, not debate. Especially in religious contexts, dialogue is a dying art. Dialogue is a dying art, especially in religious conversations, um, spiritual influence requires dialogue. This is the way to divine wisdom. And to practice dialogue is to practice wisdom from above. Yankelevich says there's four Ds to communication, four kind of Ds you can do when you're talking with somebody. You can dialogue, debate, discuss, decision-making. Dialogue, debate, discussion, decision-making. And they're all a little bit different. Discussion differs from dialogue. Discussion is about exchanging ideas. And it's, it's again, this is a necessary, it's batting ideas back and forth, but that's not dialogue. Dialogue is more than batting ideas back and forth. Debate differs from dialogue. The purpose of debate is to win an argument, to vanquish an opponent. So when you're debating, this person is saying something, and you're thinking about what you can say to counter it. And again, there's a place for debate, but that's not dialogue. Um, the worst possible way to advance mutual understanding is to win debating points at the expense of others. I'm going to say that again. The worst possible way to advance mutual understanding is to be in it to win points rather than to understand. It just shuts down dialogue. Decision-making is important. But it differs from dialogue in that once we've surfaced enough stuff to make a decision, we don't have to go any deeper. Dialogue. In order for dialogue to occur, you have to really choose it. It's easier to discuss. It's easier to debate. It's easier to decide. But to do dialogue, you have to choose it. And Three things have to be present. Now, we talked about the four Ds of communication. 
dialogue, debate, discussion, and decision-making. There are three E's to dialogue. There's got to be equality, empathy, and exploration. Equality, empathy, and exploration. If you, you can, dialogue can happen, but you have to move towards it as equals. The purpose has got to be to empathize with the other person and explore their values, why they do what they do. If those things are present, you can do dialogue. Let's look at them individually. Equality. Dialogue becomes possible, Yangelovich writes, only after trust has been built and the higher-ranking people have for the occasion removed their badges of authority and are participating as true equals. If you've ever been working in, a, in an office and the boss opens the door and he says, I just want to clear the air here. Let's talk as equals. Mm. Sometimes that's the case, but sometimes it's really not the case. It's kind of like they want to have you drop your guard. And so to open up so we can get stuff from you, that's not equality. What equality means is, is really the person, you do take off authority for the moment and say, you have permission to speak freely. Now, some of you have had discussions with a boss that that was the case. That was the case. And they went out of their way to say, listen, I know that in most places there's a hierarchy here. Here's what I really want from you right now. I want to create a place where I really want us to talk as equals. I talked to a counselor once, and he has a staff, and he was trying to promote openness in the staff. They weren't saying anything. And he'd say, what do you think of this idea? And they would just, they, and so what he understood is there's an issue that he had to deal with. You know what he said? He had to, imp, he had to intentionally create safety. Intentionally, and it took some time. He actually cultivated safety so that people could get over their inhibitions, and he got the people to the place where they were able to share. But he had to treat them as equals, and that's something we have to work at sometimes. Um, Yankelovich says this equality must be real. It can't be a formality so that those with power can say they allowed for discussion. I, I gave you the opportunity to talk. You know, okay, yeah, whatever. Equality, empathy, the ability to think someone else's thoughts and feel someone else's feelings is essential to dialogue. Again, I'm going to say this again. This is the most challenging part of dialogue, especially in spiritual conversations where we want to cling to what's right. And it's not that we sometimes we cling so tightly to what's right we don't even have the ability to understand and empathize with what the other person's saying. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what you have to want to feel where the other person is to understand. What's it like to believe that? I'm not saying I'm going to believe the same thing. Tell me more about that. Really? And how does that work with this? And it's not just trying to get them so that you can insert the truth. It's You understand dialect. It's challenging, isn't it? Especially if you have different political views, different religious views. In the area of politics and religion, dialogue is very challenging. The more we feel that we have the truth, 
the more difficult dialogue can become. That's unfortunate because dialogue is very powerful, very powerful. Um, empathy, the people to go into dialogue, there can be discussion without participants responding empathically to one another. You can have a discussion. Oh, mm-hmm. And you can be accepting but not empathetic. You understand empathetic goes a step farther. It's really leaning toward the person. Tell me more about that. It, to empathize, you have to listen and suspend judgment. That's the tough part. If I am having a discussion with you, and if I want to empathize with you, I'm going to have to suspend judgment for a moment and try to understand. That's the goal. And try to set aside. Now, it doesn't mean that I agree with everything that you say, but I want to understand you. I want to understand why you, you understand. So that's, that's what dialogue requires, empathy. Most of the time, Yankelevich writes, we lack the motivation or the patience to try to understand opinions that we disagree with. We lack the motivation or the patience to try to understand opinions we disagree with. It's easier to say no. And again, there's times for that. There's times for debate. There's times for discussion. There's times for decision-making. But we have to choose dialogue. And it means we suspend that. Exploration and dialogue, participants are encouraged to examine their own assumptions and those of other participants. Um, Yankelevich writes, arguably the most striking difference between discussion and dialogue is this process of bringing assumptions into the open while simultaneously suspending judgment. So here's with dialogue, I don't judge you, but what I say is, you know what seems to be the issue? You seem to be operating within this framework, and I'm operating in this framework. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, I think that's true. You understand what's happening. We're disagreeing, but we're trying to understand one another and understand why we believe the things we believe. Um, in The Magic of Dialogue, again in the book, uh, Yankelevich talks about a, a situation where that there was this prestigious research university who they, they had a lot of grants, and so they really made their bread and butter on the basis that they had very skilled faculty who were excellent researchers. And there were there were a, there was trustees from two different two different places. One they had a a board of trustees that were businessmen, and they had a board of trustees that were teachers. And then what happened is the president stepped down, and they had to pick another president. And the faculty wanted to hire a researcher because that's what the university did, and the trustees. The business trustees said, wait a minute, we have a lot of postdoctoral students and they need to be taken care of because we get a lot of revenue from postdoc students that come to this. And if we spend too much time focusing on research, we won't create enough of a context where postdoctoral students will want to come here. And, and so there was a, a debate happened. Um, and one of the business trustees said, Maybe we are falling into the trap of knowing more and more about less and less and losing the big picture. 
he said to the faculty. Maybe we're getting a little bit too tunnel-focused. And the faculty shot back, complained that the business trustees are out of their depth. They don't know what they're talking about. And you can imagine what happened at this meeting. It became very tense. Self-confident, relaxed tone. This trustee got up and listened to what he said. Get up. Said dryly, those of us from the business side, we're all generalists. We're uncomfortable with any kind of specialization. That's what business people do. But that's what this institute is all about. It is the most highly specialized scientists at the institute who have made the real breakthroughs. So I guess if we're uncomfortable, that probably is a sign that the institute is doing something right. And some of the business trustees chuckled, you know, boy, he has a point. And, and the academic trustees, they said, you know, and then you know what they had, had after that? Dialogue. Dialogue. So they understood their supposition. I'm a business guy. I want to be general so that I can do as much business as possible. I'm a researcher. I want to do specifics, but understanding that that's the kind of the worldview that they come from and having that said out loud, it created the opportunity for them to really hear one another. Three E's. There's got to be equality, empathy, and exploration. And if you've got those three E's, you can do dialogue. And you can do something that you cannot do when you're debating, something you cannot do when you're discussing, something that you cannot do while decision-making. You can break through walls, dialogue, through words. Um, let's see what dialogue looks like in a Christian context. Um, look what it says, Acts 17. I'll just read the first by 16 to 17, senior worship holder. says Paul was waiting for a couple of his, I think it was Titus, Timothy, maybe, I forget who it was. He was waiting for a couple of um, other missionaries, waiting for them in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Let me tell you what greatly distressed means. He came into sharp disagreement, sharp disagreement. He saw that the city was full of idols, so all these statues, and inside he said, nope, 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 sharply disagreed. He had strong opinions. Then it says he reasoned with them. The word for reasoned, it's the Greek word dialegami, which is the word for dialogue. He dialogued with them. And we have the sense, now if you want a text on a, this is not compromising anything, follow along and see what Paul does with these things and see if you can't find equality, empathy, and exploration. He reasons with them. And then we find in 22 through 28, look at this discussion. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was this place, it was just this place where everybody talked about ideas. You might call them the Areopagus eggheads. And so they just sat around all day and they said, 
Who has something new to, to tell us? Oh, great. Go ahead. Hmm. Hmm. You know, and so then they do that. And then anybody else got something? I heard this. So anyways, so Paul is speaking to the Areopagus eggheads, and they, they just, that's what they do. They sit all day, probably choking down frosties and shooting the bull. Uh, anyways, Paul stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, listen to this. I really told you a lot about Paul. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. This is slick. Really is slick. He has sharp disagreement with what he saw. But do you see what he does here? He finds common ground. He builds a bridge. You know what? The thing that's true about both of us, I can see you're very religious. You have a lot of religious objects, and they were very religious. But sometimes when we're so focused on, you have the, the, you, you, we miss what Paul was able to see. And then he goes on. This is masterful. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. This is sweet. He's saying, you know, I can see that, that you're very religious. In fact, I saw a statue that says to an unknown God, let me tell you about the God that you don't know. Let me tell you about that God. Oh, okay. Um, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. I don't know what I, I just love this thing. Somebody gets right to the heart of things. Listen to what he says. And does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's powerful. Again, what he does, he finds common ground, and then he's able to express things that they can come close to. Um, power of dialogue, and we'll see what happens in this place. Um, what it says in Proverbs, by the way, I want to throw something out. Would you call these people secular humanists? Areopagus eggheads, secular humanists, probably. You know what? It can be easier to have a discussion with a secular humanist than with a sacred legalist, can it? Sacred legalist, so locked in truth that they have no ability to even discuss, no ability to understand. Paul didn't have very good luck with sacred legalists. And again, he was very, he had definite opinions, but he also had the ability not only to have opinions, but to be able to dialogue. That's really a good balance, isn't it? Would you agree with me? Good balance. 
have firm opinions about the truth. Because there is truth and there is absolute truth. And we don't have to be apologetic about that. It's not that we're saying, oh, we believe. We don't believe everything. We don't. But we have the ability to dialogue. I want to understand where you are. I'll tell you where I am. And, and that's what Paul was able to pull off. Yeah. Anyways, it says in Proverbs, through patience, a ruler can be persuaded. Look at this. And a gentle tongue can break a bone. Now, naturally, it's not talking about, so don't try to take your tongue and break your arm. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's a gentle word if you stretch something out. In fact, patience, you know what patience is? To elongate something. It's to elongate something, to make it long, to prolong something. You know what we sacrifice? Do you know why we sacrifice dialogue sometimes? Because we're only thinking about today. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta make the point today. No, you don't. No, you don't. Prolong it. You don't have to. Rome wasn't built in a day, and that's what that's what patience is. Prolonging. Um, persuaded. It says a ruler can be persuaded. You can open something that's closed if you don't try to do it all at once. Go slow, and through patience. Somebody's mind can be open. And then it says a gentle tongue can break a bone. To, to break literally means to crush. Um, that's what it says in terms of the power of dialogue. Acts 17, 32 through 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You know what we know from church history? Dionysius became the first church leader in Athens, and Damaris was his wife. They heard Paul, and Paul was able not to just debate with them, not just discuss, not just decision-make, but dialogue. He was able to treat them as equals. He was able to be empathetic, and he was able to explore their assumptions. And Dionysius and Damaris were at that meeting, I said, I'm not sure if I buy everything, but I want to I want to hear this guy again. And the more they talked, the more their minds opened up. And they became followers of Christ, married one another, became a very, very powerful Christian couple in Athens. Power of dialogue. Um, this table. We're going to celebrate communion. We're going to have a song in just a second. Um, the one who, when we think about who personifies wisdom, is Jesus. If you didn't know where you were going, Jesus had a lot of time, was a very interesting person to talk to. The disciples, again, he was, he was gentle, but Jesus wasn't 
milquetoast, was he? If there was somebody that was set in stone, he could come against somebody, but he also had the ability to relate to people where they were. Samaritan woman, woman caught in adultery, different individuals, Jesus could find ways to associate with them. He was a great storyteller. I told parables. Parables relate to people. And he is our model. He is our model. And what we think about when we think about um, communion is the covenant that he came under to, to tell us about. A couple things. When it says that we are to be not judgmental and not hypocritical, judgment and hypocrisy get in the way of dialogue. Let me tell you about something about those words. They both are compound words that are based on judgment. They have the word judge in them. A judgmental person is overtly judging. That's what dia means, overtly. Overtly judging. The word for judgment is crino. Diacrino is overtly judging. Hypocrisy is covertly judging. It's hupocrinal, under. So it's not a judgment you can see. But whether it's extended out this way or internal in this way, the reason why we are either hypocritical or judgmental is we feel it coming this way. Hypocrisy is an echo of judgment. To the degree we, it's because we feel judged. To the degree we because we feel judged. That's what this table is about. You know what the new covenant says? I will put my law in your minds and write them on their hearts. You know what? You're not responsible to change that person. You don't, God says you don't have to put my law in their hearts. I'm responsible to do that. He says, no longer will a man teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord, because I will, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. God absolve us of ultimate responsibility to win the world. He does. He says, I'm responsible for that. And I will forgive your wickedness and remember your sins no more. And you know what I think he does? He tells us we're forgiven so that we're not so busy judging ourselves or judging others. He tells us that, and by the way, you're not ultimately responsible to save that person. You know what that frees you up to do? What? Dialogue dialogue. Talk to them. Get to know them. Is equal. Empathize. They might not believe the same as you. Have a discussion with them. Exploration. Very powerful. We're going to have some music, and again, you should think about that's the new covenant. Jesus comes and he dies on the cross to open up a relationship of non-judgment with us that opens the way to dialogue with one another. Sometime during the course of the song, grab the bread and the juice and think about Jesus dying to open up a hailing frequency to have you experience a relationship with him who is gentle and humble in heart so that you can find rest for your souls. I pray for us. Father, thank you for your plans and wisdom for the good life done in the deeds, done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. Pray as we get to know you and your commitment to us that would help us to be more like Jesus, more gentle with ourselves, gentle with others, 
believing strongly, but having the ability to enter into conversation, influence, which is deep with others. Thanks for that. And thanks for Jesus being the one who will help us understand how to do this. We'd be more like him. In his name and, and for his sake we pray. Amen.